Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, LendingLies.com, and The Garfield Firm, servicing all 50 states and 24 countries with news and analysis about the largest economic crime in human history. This program is for general information only and should not be used as a substitute for legal advice or consultation with a licensed professional. This show is not intended as a solicitation for the engagement of any services. And now, sitting in for Neil this week, it's your host, Charles Marshall. Hello, everyone. It is February 13th, 2020. Here again with you, Charles Marshall, and Nia will be back next Thursday. So the topic for today's show, we will be discussing both unlawful detainer legal proceedings, particularly legal procedure options, and then after that, uh, I will be going into issues that arise and plays that can and potentially should be made when bringing a TRO in a unlimited lawsuit where you have a foreclosure date in front of you. So just to step back a little bit to give you somewhat of a bigger view of this, today's show really will focus on California cases. As everyone knows, that's my expertise. That's the state that I practice in and and am licensed to practice in. Uh, But really, anybody who's got a non-judicial foreclosure situation that you are facing, and you could be in a judicial foreclosure state even. It just happens in some of those states that there are still non-judicial foreclosures. And certainly anybody in a Ninth Circuit state will find the information we're covering today useful. And for that matter, even if you're in a judicial foreclosure state, in terms of UD situations, again, unlawful detainer, every state has some procedure that is more or less like what happens in California. Uh, California's legal procedure in that area is actually fairly robust. And it's not as summary as it is in some states. It's not as protective as it is in some states, but it's considering that all unlawful detainer proceedings post foreclosure are legally, substantively, and procedurally a finesse, the the system is not really designed for that. Um, I will go into a brief, kind of reprise that I've mentioned in previous shows. When you're in foreclosure and you're subject to an unlawful detainer, the legal posture in California and in most states is that essentially you're a holdover tenant because obviously you don't have a rental contract. It's not like you have a payment rental contract with some landlord where you're 30 days late in rent no, you're just considered an illegal tenant as of the time of the sale. 
Nevertheless, you still get fairly legitimate version as far as it goes, version of unlawful detainer procedure. So what does that look like on the ground, particularly in California? Well, part of the way that you extend your rights in an unlawful detainer proceeding when you are a defendant, and again, especially in California, you have legal options in front of you that you can use and frankly should use in a lot of cases. Uh, Now, following the disclaimer that started with the bumper music at the beginning of this show, and sometimes I provide this, sometimes I don't, but it is a disclaimer that's provided both at the beginning and end of the show, and that is I'm not giving legal advice. This is not a legal consultation of any kind, globally or certainly individually. This is a topic show. I love to use that term because that's exactly what it is. And frankly, it's a very effective one at getting out the kinds of information and details that you won't get not literally anywhere else, but you you rarely get in other venues. So the biggest problem that unlawful detainer defendants have when they have uh, an unlawful detainer post-foreclosure lawsuit in front of them, meaning their property has gone to auction, so either the third-party purchaser, the new buyer, is there or there's no third-party purchaser who buys the property at auction. So it goes to what's called the beneficiary upon a credit bid. What that amounts to is semi-automatically without real money apparently changing hands. In fact, it is real money, but there's not really a very good paper trail of that. That's a topic for another show. But in terms of this show, whether you have a bona fide purchaser, so-called third party, or whether you have the same UD, you know, whether you have the same party who was bringing your property to sale, now harassing you in UD court, either way, uh, you can file a motion to quash in the vast majority of situations. Now, there will be situations where Possibly one could make a legal argument that it would be beyond the pale to file such a motion. I'm not going to parse out the distinctions like that. Again, this is a topic show. So if you have a specific situation, if you have a UD in front of you that you need to deal with or you anticipate that you will have one soon, then you should consult with an attorney about your options. With a motion to quash, What happens in many cases is that the service is finessed and the service is forced in some way. Short of a situation where the named defendant is actually personally served and that named defendant is like cornered in a driveway and the moving papers are put on that person only after their full name and address and the fact that they live at the residence is all confirmed at that time. How often does that happen? I'm not going to say that happens never, but let's put it this way. In my experience, that rarely happens. What more typically happens as far as service goes is there'll be some kind of sub-service 
where somebody who's not even a defendant in the case, they're served instead. I've seen many situations where children were served. Yes, I'm not talking about four-year-olds, but I am talking about 14-year-olds, 13-year-olds, even 17-year-olds. Unless you are 18 years older at the time of service, just because you happen to be at the property uh, when there's a service of UD, and just because you happen to be related to the people who live there, and just because you happen to live there, if you're under 18, you can't be legally or legitimately served. I have challenged service on that basis, and where I've challenged it and have the documentation to show it, I was able to defeat that service. They had to serve again. It took a lot more time. The other way that um, motions to quash are served typically in UDs is they'll do what's called mail and mail. They'll post uh, essentially the lawsuit on the property with a demand for you to respond. Now, hypothetically, that could all be done perfectly. I haven't seen uh, many of those cases. Nevertheless, there are requirements as to how the personal service should be done. The courts typically finesse and essentially do not really enforce those requirements. And I think the reason for that is bias. I think the reason for that is is essentially a built-in institutional bias against defendants in these types of cases. I'm not saying that in this specific case this is what happens. I'm saying that in my experience I've seen this happen. It's a problem and it's a possibility that defendants can use to advance their cases. So it allows you to file a motion to quash in many cases where you weren't personally served, but instead there was a, a, a posting. Okay, everyone, so this is Charles Marshall again. There were some brief technical difficulties. Those have been corrected, so we will go forward now. So on this whole issue of uh, motions to quash, we left off at that issue. Uh, yes, in many cases, you are going to have a legitimate basis to file one. Now, the next topic is demurs. That's what they're called in California. 
and that's essentially a motion to dismiss. Now, in the unlimited lawsuits, which we'll be talking about in a little while, those come into play sometimes. But we're talking about this in a UD context. So where you will see these in a UD context is you have the option in California of filing uh, a demur when you have a post-foreclosure UD in front of you. Now, the courts will often treat that as an illegitimate filing. The opposition certainly will. They'll even threaten sometimes attorneys, usually attorneys, sometimes pro se, pro per filers. Uh, it's more likely to be a threat against attorneys if they file a demure within the uh, the UD context under the, the claim that, oh, of course this case is legitimate because remember a motion to dismiss a demure, it's essentially saying, even if the facts that you pled were true in some context that you put forward, you still don't have a claim. And the way that that would break down in these cases, and it is somewhat complicated, of course, is where facially the documents themselves demonstrate, and often because of channel title breaks and other legal angles that expose the papers presented as fraudulent. Uh, as Neil likes to say, and of course I follow him in this, uh, you have in these types of cases where an unlawful detainer case is brought, uh, you have a fake notice of default with a fake notice of trustee sale based on that and then various uh, intermediate documents filed to allow both the notice of default and the notice of trustee. You have a substitution of trustee where all of these documents are based on fakery of various kinds, and that is the position that Neil and I take on a lot of these types of foreclosure situations because the provenance of the loan is essentially being misrepresented when these these uh, properties are brought to sale. So just to finish the thread on this, where the motion to dismiss the demur comes in is where you legitimately consider that the other side on the, uh, uh, in your UD case, meaning the plaintiff, meaning the institutional trust, sometimes the servicer will claim to hold the note, then they'll be the UD plaintiff regardless who's ever bringing that lawsuit against you, you do have a legal right to demur, to file a motion to dismiss in most cases. Could there possibly be a case that where it would legitimately be considered fraudulent? Hypothetically, I don't uh, take the position that that's something that is going to be a regular occurrence here. I'm not saying it's impossible. However, given the fraud involved in so many of these cases where the properties are going to have gone to sale, it's absolutely uh, facially legitimate to challenge with a demur. And the way that that would play out is you would set a, uh, a hearing date and then you would file your papers like with any other demur. 
Now, the other side in unlimited lawsuits uses Demiris all the time. These are available in UD procedure, and I will tell Barr real quickly that the state of California is doing everything it can seemingly in different counties to truncate these rights of borrowers, of former borrowers, because they actually passed legislation several years ago to make it more difficult to file a demur. And yet when they passed that legislation, it put in so-called meet and fur requirements. Those don't apply to UD situations. Those don't apply to limited lawsuits, meaning where there's less than $15,000 at issue. So the bottom line is you don't have to meet and defer. You don't have to contact the other side. You can just file a demur when you're in a UD defense situation. That will buy you significant time. And that's something that UD defendants always need is they need more time. So filing a demur will buy them more time. Sometimes it will buy them up to two months or more. Typically it will buy them four to six weeks. And remember, the UD timeline is very short. You have to answer very quickly. We're talking days, not weeks. Now, federal removals. That, of course, is a, is a controversial topic. And as everyone listening to this show knows, Elon and I are not afraid to talk about, and I frankly consider it my duty to discuss controversial topics. These defendants in UDs, particularly in California, are being railroaded. That's simply the way it is. I'm talking about the post-foreclosure situations. It's not a matter of somebody who's not paying their rent and they're just looking for an excuse to stay in the property longer and they have a rental agreement and they're not paying. That's not what's happening. Again, everyone listening to this show knows that. They know that there are a lot of legitimate reasons why a homeowner has opposition to the foreclosure happening to them and that there are a lot of legal bases for challenging the foreclosure. But then when they ultimately lose in court or they never go to court for whatever reason, they can be facing an unlawful detainer lawsuit after their property goes to sale. A federal removal is just saying that based on civil rights violations of various kinds, they're being railroaded and that a federal court should take a look at it. Now, the institutional people, and this includes the courts, would like people to believe, including the listeners of this show, that federal removals are fraudulent, that they're always illegitimate, that they have no legal basis. The fact of the matter is they're a tool. Again, I'm not saying that they're appropriate in a specific case. I don't address specific cases on this show, generally. And so where you see federal removals, it will buy significant time if you're in a UD situation. It's a tool. People should look into it. That's all I'm going to, to say further on that matter. Uh, same is true for bankruptcies. Uh, a lot of institutional people, including their attorneys and sometimes courts, will make it sound like, oh, it's just fraudulent to file a bankruptcy you have a UD. Uh, no, that's an overstatement, and that does not play out or parse out all the fine distinctions on the basis of which one might file a bankruptcy while subject to UD. Again, those listening to the show should look into this further. Now, in the time remaining, we're going to be talking about unlimited lawsuits in California particularly. 
where there's a plaintiff's TRO ex parte hearing moving forward. And I had one today. I'm not going to talk about details other than to say that uh, the TRO was successful. Um, I will bring up a couple of things, several things, because it relates exactly to the elements you need to bring a TRO when you have an option sale in front of you and you have a situation where you're considering bringing a TRO, uh, fundamental one, you must file a lawsuit first. You must have an unlimited lawsuit against the parties bringing your property to sale. Now, you may have other parties in that lawsuit, but it's absolutely critical that you have the servicer and the nominal trust holder. You do not have to have the sales trustee in the lawsuit, by the way. Uh, You can list the sales trustee as a non-party, and that allows you to not have them as a defendant, and yet you can describe their illegal behavior within the lawsuit itself. It's a perfectly legitimate tool to play out given strategy in these cases. Again, uh, there will be attorneys that you can consult with uh, to find out further what that would look like. Uh, the interesting thing about sales trustees in the last five years, four years, increasingly more every year, is they're, they're essentially uh, fronts for law firms now. A lot of sales trustees have essentially aligned so closely with law firms that you can't tell them apart from their law firms. This is not the case with servicers. The vast majority of servicers do not have adjunct law firms essentially running interference for everything they do. They hire boutique firms. They hire large firms, specialty firms in foreclosure. They hire typically institutional attorneys. Some of them are smaller. A lot of them are larger. But they're not an adjunct or essentially a part of their organizational structure even, which is what you'll see with a lot of sales trustees. So if you don't sue the sales trustee formally as a defendant, that allows you to go into a TRO hearing in such a way that they're not a named defendant. So you do need a course, and you should uh, make every effort to serve your TRO uh, papers and make contact with the defendants in the case. That's a requirement, and you're going to need to do that. And, yes, that's going to be logistically involved. It's something you're going to have to put together anytime you set up one of these TROs. And, you know, frankly, if you're a pro per, if you're going to go the TRO route, it's such a specialized area. It's, it's an argument, frankly, for hiring an attorney to bring your case. I don't think there's a hybrid situation where you'll be able to bring an attorney in as sort of specialty consultation to give you TRO advice without being on the case in chief. I'm not saying that's impossible. More realistically, you'd want to go with an attorney. Otherwise, you need to do a lot of research in advance to make sure you're following the proper procedure. So, yes, you have the filed lawsuit. You have the notice requirements. Uh, Timing issues. Now, the way that plays out is 
you can file your lawsuit too soon in advance of a common sale. File it, let's say, three weeks out, and you serve the lawsuit right away. You're giving the defendants, and again, remember they're ruthless. Remember they're institutional, so yes, they're disorganized but also have huge resources to draw on. So if you give them three weeks in, in advance of the sale, in essence, to review your complaint, you're giving them a lot of time and, and wherewithal for them to put together what's going on in your case. And a better place strategically is to sue, not like literally right before the sale, because there's too many things to pull together, for you to put in place a lawsuit. I'm not saying that it's impossible. I mean, it's logistically impossible to file a lawsuit 24 hours in advance of the sale and still get a TRO. That is logistically impossible because there are notice requirements. Given the notice requirements, if you file your lawsuit somewhere between three and five days out, typically that's a sweet spot that works. I would see, say even five to seven gives you a little bit of a cushion. And still, the opposition defendants are not going to have a ridiculous amount of time to review your matter. So it's less likely they will appear. This is an important point, and it's an, an important strategic point. You want to bring your case and your TRO in such a way that the other side is less likely to appear. Uh, by the way, when I say this, I'm not recommending some uh, illegal strategy. I'm recommending that borrowers who need all the help they can get in all the angles, strategic and otherwise, they can bring to the fore for their benefit, look into these issues. It's a perfectly legitimate tactic for the other side to have less time to respond to what you're trying to do. So you bring your lawsuit anywhere from three to seven days out, three is cutting it a little close. Frankly, that's a timeline that I can deal with, and I've done it uh, more than a few times, and it's a perfectly legitimate strategy. I'm filing bona fide lawsuits for real harm predicated on fundamental legal precepts. There's nothing irregular or illegal about any of that. That my opposition has less time than ideal to respond before the TRO hearing is simply a matter of uh, of timing, and that's it. So if your opposition doesn't really have time to, to seriously look into your case and even review the complaints, there's a good possibility they won't even show up at the TRO hearing. And then, yes, you have a really good chance of prevailing at the TRO, no matter what your TRO papers say. If there is no opposition. Now, the other thing that I think people need to know, um, when you're talking about strategies to increase odds of prevailing, you really should have robust TRO paperwork. Now, if you file close to the time of the hearing, first of all, there are risks with filing a lawsuit that close. I'm sorry, the sale date. One of the risks with doing that is you can run out of time to get all your paperwork, to get everything filed, to meet all the notice requirements. Let's say you've handled that perfectly and you've got a a hearing coming up. You're pretty sure there's going to be no opposition based on how things are shaking out. It turns out there is no opposition at the hearing. Well, guess what? 
even if there is no opposition, even if the judge then says, okay, I grant your TRO without much further review, if any, you still have to have a preliminary injunction hearing. That hearing in California is going to be set anywhere from two to three weeks later. You have to have substantive, really solid legal arguments to prevail at that hearing. If you don't prevail at that hearing, then you're back at square one, and you can be continuing to face sale dates. So it's really critical with a TRO scenario that you set yourself up to prevail in the later preliminary injunction hearing, which will always happen. It's called a preliminary injunction. In the real world, it's really a permanent injunction in that it will enjoin for the pendency of the lawsuit, however long the lawsuit goes on, it will enjoin the other side from bringing the property to sale. So in a future show, we will discuss uh, preliminary injunctions more fully, and, and that's what we have on this uh, day for uh, February 13th, the day before Valentine's Day. And I wish all listeners, whatever side you're on of these matters, a good Valentine's Day. And Neil will be back next week. The opinions expressed on The Neil Garfield Show are those of its hosts and should not be ascribed to any other persons or entities. For more information about Neil, the blog, or upcoming seminars, please visit livinglies.me. Give us a call at 954-451-1230 or send an email to n-e-i-l-f-g-a-r-f-i-e-l-d at hotmail.com. Thank you for listening to The Neil Garfield Show. If the information has helped you, consider making a donation by visiting livinglies.me.